Now I invite you to continue meditating as I get started on today's talk. The title of this week, this day along is The Four Noble Truths Revisited. I'm assuming you've all had, been, had some exposure to the Four Noble Truths already as part of an introduction to Buddhism. You have to remember, though, that when the Buddha was teaching the Four Noble Truths, he wasn't introducing people to Buddhism. He was sp speaking to their needs and their desires. And the primary need and desire he was addressing was the need to put an end to pain, the desire to put an end to pain. This is a desire that he honored he himself went out in search of the Dharma because of the pain and suffering that come from aging, illness, and death. He wanted to find a way to put an end to them. When he found that way, he wanted to teach that way to other people. So his first teaching centered around the theme of Dukkha, which its primary meaning is pain. In the old days, if you were to tell somebody you had a pain in your shoulder, you said you had a Dukkha in your shoulder. It can also be translated as stress and suffering. It's one word in Pali that covers a wide range of meanings from you know, intense suffering all the way to slight feelings of stress. Um, one translation you may run into every now and then here in the West is unsatisfactory or dissatisfaction. And I've never understood where that particular interpretation came from. You don't say, I have an unsatisf unsatisfactory feeling in my shoulder. You say, I've got a pain. And that's what the Buddha was talking about. Uh, it's just that he saw pain and stress in areas where a lot of us don't see it. And in fact, he was unique in his time in making this the focal point of his teaching, focusing on that, that issue of pain, suffering, stress. As he said, our normal reaction to pain is twofold. One, bewilderment. You have no idea where it came from, why it's happening. You can think particularly of a child suffering from a pain. A child has no idea why it's there. And secondly, there's a search to find a way to put an end to pain. And a search involves other people, as the Buddha articulates this, this desire for the end of pain. He says, who knows a way to put or two to the cessation of this pain? So the bewilderment comes from the complexity of the causation of pain. And this desire also places some shape on the kinds of truths that we're looking for. One is, we see that there is a basic duality. This is the duality of pain on the one hand and freedom from pain on the other. And the Buddha honors that duality. He wasn't the sort of person who says that oneness is good and dualities are bad. And throughout the rest of his teachings, honors the fact that the reality of pain and the reality of the cessation of pain are two totally different things. Secondly, the, the way the search is formulated, it gives it a social dimension. You're looking for help from other people. As you mentioned last night, you wonder if we had no pain at all in our lives, would we be interested in other people at all? Think about that. So you're looking for someone you can trust, so someone who really knows the end of suffering and can share that knowledge and has the compassion to share it. And those of you who actually read the readings, you may remember in that passage in Majjhima 95, they talk about when you're looking for a teacher, 
There's some questions you should ask. You should stay with the teacher for a while and observe the teacher and look for two things. One, would this teacher ever say anything or lay claim to knowledge that he or she doesn't have? If you catch them laying claim to knowledge that they don't have, okay, find somebody else. Secondly, would they ever tell anybody to do something that was not in that person's best interest? So in the first case, you're looking for knowledge. In the second case, you're looking for compassion. And if the teacher doesn't pass either of those tests, you want to find somebody else. The other point that has to do with this social dimension and the search for the end of suffering is that you're looking at basically for two kinds of realities or two kinds of truths. There's the actual reality of pain versus the reality of the end of pain. So that's truth as a reality. And then the knowledge that that person has, that that person can convey to you through the conventions of words and language. Those, those are truths as truths about reality or statements about reality. And the Buddha, as we'll find discussing later on, when he uses the word truth, he means one of these two things. When he talks about nirvana as a truth, he's not talking about it simply as words about the end of suffering. He's not talking about the reality. But there are other cases where he talks about people telling the truth. He makes sure that their words correspond to the realities. So we have truths, true words, which are simply means to the realities. What all, all we're going to be saying today about the Four Noble Truths, they are means to the end, an actual end, an actual reality. Um, this is reflected in the forest tradition they talk about. In, in the commentaries, they were talking about two levels of language in the Buddhist teachings. One is the level of conventional truths, and the other is the level of ultimate truths. And they'll say that basically as two different levels of language. There's the truths about, say, about aggregates and the truths about sense media. Those are ultimate truths. When you talk about people doing this, people doing that, those are only conventional truths. From the point of view of the forest tradition, every statement you make is a convention. Even you talk about the three characteristics, you talk about aggregates, you talk about the Four Noble Truths. These are all conventions. They're truths for a purpose. Um, the technical term there is that they're instrumental. You use them for a purpose and you put them aside. This is why the Buddha has that image of the, the Dharma as a raft. You put the raft together, use it to get over to the other side of the river. Hold on to the raft while you're in the middle of the river. Don't make a show of how free you are by letting go of the raft and getting swept down the stream. Um, but you hold on to the raft, and you get to the other side. Okay, you don't pick up the raft and carry it with you. But it's, it, the raft has accomplished its purpose. You put it down and move on. This will help to explain some of the statements that we hear about. On the one hand, the Buddha talks about awakening to the truth and nirvana as being the ultimate noble truth. And on the other hand, people not being attached to true and false, not being attached to views. The awakened people are not attached to views. They're not attached in the sense they've already used the views for their purpose, and they can put them aside. When you're not there yet, don't pretend that you're there. You hold on to the truths. Um, sometimes you see the statement, I think it's in some of your translations, you know, being, being free of fixed views. Well, the Buddha would actually say, fix your views, okay? <laughs> Get them right, hold on to them, and then when they preserve their purpose, that's when you let them go. So that this, the way the Buddha expresses this search for the end of pain, one, it creates a basic duality between the reality of suffering and the reality of the end of suffering. And it also points out two different kinds of truths, like the, um, the truth of reality and the truth of words. And as I say, given this social dimension, you're looking for someone who's compassionate, someone who has knowledge. 
He can give you the knowledge that then you would use as a tool to get to the reality of the other suffering. So that basic desire oh, puts some shape onto the truths that you're looking for. There are some areas where it's unclear, or where this desire is unfocused. The search, kind of, you may ask, what kind of way do you want? Do you want some, the other person to do the work for you, or are you willing to do the work yourself? Um, secondly, are you asking for the total cessation of all pain, or just the cessation of this particular pain? In the beginning, you probably want the cessation of all pain. If I have one pain, and I've, I've had enough pain in my life, I don't see that anymore. But then it keeps coming again and again and again in different guises, and a lot of us lower our sights to the point where we say, well, I'll just be happy to get rid of this particular pain, knowing that other pains will come in the future. And as we'll be pointing out later, the Buddha wants you to raise your sights back up again. It is possible to put a total end to suffering and pain. And then finally, are we talking about physical pain, mental pain, or both? The Buddha in the Four Noble Truths will be focusing your, his talking on, his words on putting an end to that mental pain first. But then when you put an end to that, then the mind is no longer creating the conditions down the line for actual any kind of pain at all. So ultimately you're getting rid of both physical pain and mental pain, but the focus is on the mental pain to begin with. So even though the search leaves things a little unclear in some areas, it does divide the problem of pain into four parts, which is why we have four noble truths and not five. There's the pain itself, there's the way to, that leads to pain, and there's the possibility of ending the pain and the way to that ending. And this is the structure of the four noble truths. It's like a doctor's approach to a disease. Pain would be the diagnosis of the list of the symptoms. Second simple truth, the, the cause of origination of suffering or pain would be the diagnosis to what the cause of this illness is. The third noble truth talks about the possibility, yes, it is possible to cure the illness. And fourth is by attacking the cause. And then the fourth noble truth is the, the actual way of the, the, the cure. And while we're on the topic of the four noble truths, and we talk about truth, noble, and four. Okay, here's, that's the four. This is where we have four of them. Although I did see a piece on a tricycle website one time, it was saying the fifth noble truth had been discovered. <laughs> but it turned out it was in the humor section. Okay. <laughs> okay, now as I said, truths for the Buddha are either realities or words about the reality. As for noble, it has several meanings. The primary one is that it's always true for everybody. It doesn't shy. He, the Buddha doesn't shy away from the idea that there are such things as universal objective truths. It's going to be the same for everybody. For everybody, the reason you're suffering is because of your, your craving. And for you, what the actual suffering itself is going to be the clinging. Secondly, another reason why the Buddha calls them noble is because they inform what he calls the noble search. When he left home, he said, there are two types of search. The search, knowing that you are subject to aging, illness, and death yourself. If you're looking for happiness in something else that is subject to aging, illness, and death, that's not a noble search. because It just doesn't take you anywhere. The noble search is one that takes you to something that doesn't age, doesn't grow ill, doesn't die. And these four noble truths are truths that inform that search, that noble search. Another reason why they're called noble is, is because they are preeminent among the Buddhist teachings. These are said to be the basic framework for all the Dharma. Venerable Sariputta one time said that you, just as the footprint of an elephant can contain all the footprints of all, all land-based animals in the world, in the same way the Four Noble Truth contains all skillful teachings. Which is an important point to keep in mind when you're thinking about a particular teaching 
and wanting to know how it fits in with other teachings in the Dharma, always remember, affordable truths are the context. Everything else fits into the context. For example, the three characteristics. Sometimes you hear the Four Noble Truths explained as that these truths are true, true because there is, no, there is nothing that's permanent. The Buddha doesn't make the three characteristics the context. He makes the Four Noble Truths the context. In this particular case, one of the duties we have with regard to the, the origination of suffering and the suffering itself is to develop this passion for these things. And the way to develop this passion is, is to apply the three, he doesn't call them characteristics, he calls them three perceptions. Apply the three perceptions of inconstancy, stress, not self, to anything that you are holding on to, anything that you're clinging to or craving, to develop this passion for that. So the teachings of the three perceptions find their meaning within the context of the Four Noble Truths. So that's these Noble Truths are noble in the sense that they are preeminent. And they're ennobling them because they make you a noble person. And even before you get to being a noble person, that you develop a noble attitude towards your craving and clinging. And also make you noble in taking responsibility for your suffering and responsibility for actually accomplishing the path. Because each of these truths entails a duty. Um, the duty with regard to the truth of suffering is to comprehend it. So instead of running away from it, or pushing it away, or throwing the blame on somebody else, you try to comprehend, okay, what is actually the suffering here? What is the stress? Then there's the second noble truth, which is the truth that the cause of suffering carries the duty that you should abandon it. Those who find out that truth is three types of craving, and that then it, it requires you to step back from your cravings and, and begin to pass some judgment on them as to which ones are really worthwhile following, which ones are not. That requires that you take a noble attitude towards your cravings. And then the duty with regard to the third noble truth is to develop this passion for the craving. That's the cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the duty there is to develop the path so you take responsibility for the cure. That's also ennobling. And then finally, eventually the path is something that it will too have to be abandoned as well at the very end. We'll get to that at, at the end of the day. If you read the passage from the Mahavaga in the Buddha's first sermon, you'll see how these various comments I'm making about the Four Noble Truths played out in his approach to teaching. He starts out by coming to see the Five Brethren. And I don't know if you know the background of the story. After he came to awakening, he sat under in the area of the Bodhi tree for seven weeks, enjoying the bliss of release. And after enjoying that for a long time, I've always wondered, you know, they said his, his knowledge during that time was like the knowledge of all the trees in the forest, and what he taught us was a handful of leaves. You're always curious, well, I'd like to know something more about that forest. Seven, seven full weeks of, <laughs> of bliss and knowledge. I wonder, what he's, wonder if you saw how the Grand Canyon was formed. <laughs> so he comes out of that, and he's thinking about, well, should I teach? And his first inclination is, no. This is going to be a really difficult time. And you look at the remainder of his life, and you realize that setting up the Dharma and getting it established it would last for 2,000 plus years was not an easy task. On the one hand, they had to deal with all sorts of, you know, difficult people, not only outside of Buddhism, but also among the monks and nuns. You hear these people come and they ordain, and then all of a sudden they create problems. You ever read the, the origin stories to the, the rules of the, the monks and the nuns? There's some pretty wild characters. And you can imagine the Buddha saying, how could they think this would be in line with the Dharma? You know? <laughs> 
So he had to do that for 45 years. But then also the fact that he contemplated not teaching and almost decided not to teach um, makes the point that when he did decide to teach, it wasn't out of any sense of obligation. Now, he could have, and this is the point they keep making, enlightened people have pretty much ended their obligations to the world. And so when the Buddha finally did decide to teach, you know, Brahma, Brahma saw that the Buddha might not teach, came down and asked him, please teach, there are those who will understand. And the Buddha surveyed the world and said, yes, there will be those who will understand. So he decides to teach. Okay, that's a gift. Everything that from that point on is a total gift. So he figures out, who should I teach? He had studied with two masters who had taught him formless jhanas. But it turns out he realized, okay, they had both passed away recently, had gone into these formless states where they wouldn't be able to hear him anymore. So he couldn't teach them. Then there were the five brethren. These were monks who had looked after him when he'd gone through six years of austerity. So he decided to go teach them. Now they had left him because at the end of six years, the Buddha had realized that he was not going to attain anything. He was probably going to die if he continued with the austerities and still not gain the deathless that he sought. And so he contemplated, is there another way? And a memory occurred to him, but he that spontaneously entered the first jhana as a child. And the question was, am I, could this be the way? And something inside him said, yes. So he decided to try it, and that's how he found his way out of the difficulties in which he put himself. But in order to attain that kind of state of concentration, he was going to have to eat, eat regular food, because he'd been starving himself. So when the five brothers saw that he was eating food, they had given up on him. Just as an aside, centuries later in Thailand, there was an incident where a king, his name was Nareswan, it's, it's a very long, complicated story, but I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Um, he was supposed to be a vassal of the Burmese, and he, he becomes king, and he says, not enough of being a vassal, I'm king. So the Burmese sent their viceroy in to show him, teach him a lesson. So the viceroy comes with his army, and Sunarasuan gets his troops together, and they do a stealth elephant attack at dawn. Of, always wondered about how stealthy you could be on elephants. But, <laughs> but, and it turns out his elephant was by far the fastest elephant of the group. And so he gets into the Burmese camp, the dust settles. He's the only one of the Thai troops there. And they just haven't caught up with him. Well, he sees the Burmese viceroy. And there was, there was some sort of bad blood between him and the viceroy. So he challenges him to a one-on-one -on -one duel. He says, this is probably the last time in history that people will have a one-on-one -on -one duel like this. Are you man enough to do it? And so the viceroy falls for the bait. And they have a they have a duel, and Nray Suen wins. And just as he's winning, the Thai troops arrive, and then they drive the Burmese out. This is a very famous incident in Thai history. You go into Thai homes, even they have little pillows on, on the couches, with, with Nray Suen killing the other guy. Although they do it symbolically, they, they show him breaking the other guy's elephant, uh, excuse me, his umbrella. At any rate, Nray Suen gets back home, He's furious with his generals for not keeping up with him. And so he decides he's going to kill them all off as, as a punishment. Word of this gets to one of the senior monks outside of the capital city. And so the senior monk calls him in and says, I want to talk to you about this. So Nuresum goes to see him. The monk says, you know the story about the Buddha getting his awakening, right? Yes. The five brethren, where were the five brethren when he came to his awakening? Well, they had left. And Senior Wang said, and the fact that the Buddha came to awakening all alone, does, doesn't that add to his glory? 
they'd accomplished all, all on his own without any help from anyone. He said, in the same way, you're going to go down in history for having done this alone. This is going to add to your glory. Like you mentioned, the king feeling. So he forgives the generals. Anyway, back to our story. So he goes to see the five brethren. And as he comes, they see him coming from afar. And they say, here is that lackadaisical Kodama. Uh, when he comes, we're not going to show him any respect. Well, he comes and they can't help themselves. So they take his bowl, they wash his feet and everything. But they just, they don't, they keep addressing him as friend, which is basically addressing him as an equal. He says, you know, this is not appropriate. I'm, I've gained awakening. He said, how could you gain awakening? You've given up on the path. He said, I haven't given up. I've found the true path. How could you find the true path when you give up? He said, and so this goes back and forth a couple of times. He finally says, look, have I ever made a claim like this before? And they realize that no, we haven't. So, okay, can listen to me and I'll, I'll teach you the way to an end of suffering. I've found the way, I'll teach it to you. So he's trying to establish the fact that, yeah, he is reliable, he does have knowledge, he does have the compassion to teach them the end of the way to the end of suffering, which is basically what you're looking for in a teacher dealing with this, this problem. That's so even the Buddha himself had to establish his credentials with these people who had known him. It's only then that he's able to teach them. And when he starts with the teaching, he doesn't start with the Four Noble Truths right away. He starts with the path as the context, which makes the point that the, and the Four Noble Truths are the first factor in the path, which makes the point, as I said earlier, that the, arriving at this right view is not the goal. We're not here to say, oh yes, the Buddha was right about the Four Noble Truths. That's not what we're here for. We're here to use those Four Noble Truths as instruments, as tools to get us to the actual end of suffering. So I want to say some, some words about the first noble truth, and I'll stop for questions. Okay, the first noble truth is the pain of, is the truth of dukkha. And as I said earlier, the, this is ideally translated as pain, stress, or suffering. Some other translations that you see, as I said, one of them is that it's unsatisfactoriness, which I, which I find is a very unsatisfactory um, translation. <laughs> um, the others are sometimes that the commentaries like to take poly words and take them apart and put them together to sort of make it what they call didactic etymologies. It's not a real etymology for the term, but they like to make one that gives a lesson. And so they compare it to the axle of a wheel, and the axle of the wheel is not put on properly. So there's something that's a little bit off kilter about things. Again, that's, that's kind of beside the point. The Buddha himself never made that analogy. Um, there's another analogy that said it's do means bad and ka means space, so your mind is in a bad space. Um, which again, it's not, you know, if you have a pain in your shoulder, it's a pain in your shoulder, whether you have a mind in a good space or not. So I think we sort of stick with pain, stress, and suffering. Those kind of convey the range of meanings of the word dukkha. Um, sort of keep that in mind. Now you hear two interpretations you hear about the first noble truth that should be put aside. One is the idea that life is suffering. Now, the Buddha had they said, life is suffering. Well, what's the alternative? You're going to die and put an end to suffering? Well, that doesn't work. And the Buddha himself never said that life is suffering. He also didn't simply say that there is suffering, because they, <laughs> the response to that would be, duh. Um, everybody knows there is suffering. He actually says suffering is a specific thing. It's clinging. And this is the part that's going to go against the grain as I get into what, what clinging involves. But first, before he says that, he starts with some familiar examples. Rather than define the term dukkha, 
he says, okay, there's dukkha in birth, aging, illness, death, the dukkha of not getting what you want, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair, not getting what you want, having to be with what you don't like, being separated from what you do like. Okay, those are things we've all experienced before, and there, there's pain in all of those things, physical pain or mental pain. And then he goes to the common denominator, which at first may seem strange, but as you get to understand the terms, you realize it's actually referring to something that's quite intimate in your experience of life. Um, he says the five aggregates, the five clinging aggregates. Let's go over the aggregates first, and then we'll go over clinging. In terms of the five aggregates, there's the aggregate of form, which is any physical form, which would be your body, the forms you see outside, any physical thing. There's the aggregate of feeling. These are feeling tones of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. There are perceptions. Perceptions here would be the labels that the mind applies to things. Like if you look at a picture of a John Cha, you say, okay, it's a John Cha. You, picture, you see the light, that's the light. It's the label that you apply to things. These are perceptions. Then there are thought fabrications where you put thoughts together with your through, through your intentions, because you're trying to figure things, figure things out, try to decide what to do in a particular case, situation. Okay, that's fabrication. And then finally, there is consciousness, which is your awareness, just sort of basic receptive awareness um, element in, in the mind. So those are the five aggregates. Now you might ask, well, why does the Buddha define your experience into five aggregates? One is because he says, it's from these five aggregates that you assemble your sense of who you are. You tend to identify either with your body, or with your um, feelings, or with your perceptions, or around your thoughts, thought ways of thinking. You know, you identify yourself as being a particular type of, holding particular political views, holding particular views about reality outside, and or you simply define yourself in terms of your consciousness. We'll get a little bit more into that later. Um, and also, these five aggregates, they're not things, they're not little bits of gravel. Okay? We were passed by the, the Northern Aggregate Company the other day, <laughs> as we're driving up here. Um, they're actually activities. The Buddha defines them with verbs. Even form, he says, deforms. Feelings feel, perceptions perceive, thought fabrications fabricate, and then consciousness cognizes. And they're related to the act of feeding. We, we tend to define ourselves around the things we eat, the way we eat. In fact, this is, this is what is common to all beings. There's a catechism with a series of questions. What is one? What is two? What is three? What is four? And all the way up to what is ten? And this, this, this was taught to young novices. And the most interesting of the questions is what is one? And the answer is all beings subsist on food. This is, why, this is how we identify ourselves as beings, is how we eat. And when we eat, we engage in these five activities. First, we have form. On the one hand, you have the body that you're trying to nourish. And then there are the things outside that you're trying to look for in terms of your food to nourish this body. That would be form. Feelings, you've got the feeling of hunger that's driving you to look for food. And then there's the feeling of satisfaction that comes when you've had your fill. Three, perceptions. Our basic perceptions about the world begin with the perceptions. Is this edible? We don't quite have the, the back vocabulary at that point, but you see a little kid walking across or crawling across the floor. They come across an object. What's the first thing they do with it? Into the mouth. And if it's edible, they'll eat it. If it's not edible, they'll put it down. 
as perception. Fabrication means basically thinking about where you're going to look for your food, thinking about how you're going to find it. Once you find it, what are you going to do with it? If you get a raw potato, you can't eat it as it is. What are you going to do with it? That's fabrication. And then finally, consciousness is aware of, aware of all these activities. So these are actually very intimate activities. It's the way we go about feeding, not only physically, but also mentally. We feed emotionally off of other people. We feed mentally off of certain ideas. We feed mentally off of our, our own intentions. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why the Buddha points to these five aggregates. And it's also one of the reasons why we tend to identify ourselves around them, because they're such an intimate part of who our sense of who we are. As for clinging, the Buddha says there are basically four kinds. There's cling, sensuality clinging, view clinging, habit and practice clinging, and clinging to a doctrine of self. Let's go down these one by one. Sensuality is not so much sensual pleasures as it is the mind's fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures. I made this point last night. If you're going to eat a pizza, it takes, what, how many minutes to eat a pizza? Not too much, right? But you could think about a pizza from now until lunchtime, you know. <laughs> All the different toppings, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Um, and sometimes thinking about the pizza is actually more, a lot more fun than the actual pizza. And that's what we really cling, that's where we really cling, is through our plans and our hopes for sensuality. View clinging is basically viewing, viewing our views about how the world is and how it works. What is the real world outside? What's actually going on? And you see this, you know, on websites that are devoted to, you know, whichever point you are on the political spectrum, that it's like you're in a different world. You know, you go to Global Research and it's one world. You go to the World Socialist White website, it's another world. You go to Fox News, it's another world. So your views about the world are things that people, ways that people cling to the five aggregates. Habit and practice clinging. Sometimes this is translated as rites and rituals or precept and practice which makes it sound as if you, you don't follow the precepts and you're done with this particular kind of clinging. But that's not the case. The Buddha is talking about the habits you have, habitual ways of doing things that you tend to identify with. This has to be done that way, that has to be done this way. And, and which could also include things where you have no precepts at all. Um, and then doctrines of the self, basically how you identify yourself, how you define yourself. When the Buddha says, when you're defining yourself around those five aggregates, either it's a case of defining yourself as the aggregate or as what possesses the aggregate. In other words, you are the person who owns this body, or you are the person who owns these feelings. Um, that you either are inside the aggregate, there's that, there was that old Indian belief that there's a little you in there that goes and peeps out your eyes and goes and listens out your ears and then touches, and touches the skin. Um, I remember when I was a child, I must admit I was pretty unimaginative when they talk about you know, going to church and they talk about your soul. I had this vision of something that was kind of like a little piece of leather. That <laughs> and years later I compared that with my older brother and he said, well, he, he envisioned, envisioned his soul as being like this little rusty tin can that had a rod going through it. Now how on earth he arrived at that one? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but you could also think of yourself as existing within this infinite sense, sense of consciousness. Okay, I'm inside this world of consciousness, and there's the me in there. Or that the aggregate is actually in you. 
the aggregates of your body and your feelings are sort of limited, but there's this unlimited you that possesses them or surrounds them. These are various ways in which we could define ourselves around around the aggregates. Now it's you just put them as a list here, this sounds kind of arbitrary. Why would the Buddha say we cling in terms of sensuality, views, habits, and practices, and self? But it actually gets down to some very basic functions of the mind. Sensuality clinging basically has to, it has to do with what you want. I want this kind of pleasure, I want that kind of pleasure. View clinging has to do with your sense of the reality principle. How, how, how does this world work? What, what is the actual world and how does it work? How can I negotiate with my way around the world to find the happiness I want? Then habit and practice is basically your idea of what you should do in order to get what you want. And then the self is sort of you negotiating among these other clingings. You, you takes on three different roles. One, there's the agent, the one who actually does things. Then there's the self as the consumer. Like if you're thinking about that pizza, you as the agent would be, okay, I have enough money either to buy a pizza or I have the skills with which I could make a pizza. That's you as the agent. Then you as the consumer, I'm the one who's going to enjoy the pizza when it comes out, when it's done. And then finally, there's you, the observer, who's watching the other two. Say, are these people, are they dealing with something they should deal with? Pizzas are okay. If you start thinking about how much you're, you would really fall in, like to fall in love with your neighbor, even though you're already married, that, that's when the observer says, no, this is not quite so okay, okay? So you've got three roles for the self. And you think about different forms of modern psychology, and they sort of fit into this. Sensuality, if you're taking Freud's analysis, sensuality would have to do with the id. Um, your, your view clinging would have to do with the reality principle. Habit practices would be basically what your superego tells you you should or should not do. And then the self would be the ego who's trying to negotiate among your, your desires and your sense of what you should or shouldn't do and give them the way the world is. Jung would analyze it in a different way. There's the, the shoulds that come from the small egoist and the shoulds that come from the larger, larger unconscious. But these are all very basic mental functions. Desire, your view of the reality, your sense of should, should not, and then how are you going to negotiate among these things. And we cling in these different ways and we, we suffer. This is actually the suffering and the clinging. Which is why the Buddha didn't simply say there is suffering. He says suffering is the clinging, five clinging aggregates. And as you said, as I said earlier, the, the duty with regard to this first noble truth is to comprehend it. That doesn't mean you simply witness the fact of suffering, but you actually comprehend, okay, the suffering is in the clinging, and you can actually see yourself as you're clinging to one thing or another thing. Say, oh yes, there is stress, there is suffering that goes into this. And as I said earlier, the word dukkha doesn't always mean, mean suffering. Like it can mean stress, like when you're clinging to a very refined state of concentration, a very refined insight. There can also be suffering there. In that case, we would say suffering so much as we say stress. So you have to be. One of the purposes of the path is to get yourself more and more sensitive to the ways in which you are causing stress, even the things that you actually like. This is one of the reasons why I said earlier, or I may have said last night, but not this morning, but that's a lot about the Four Noble Truths that's counterintuitive. I mean, the things that, that we go through life thinking that it's through our cravings and clingings that we're going to find happiness, and the Buddha said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. The clinging itself is the suffering. The craving is the cause of suffering. 
Now, this doesn't say that all desire is going to be bad. When we get into the path, we'll discover that there is a role for desire in the path as well. But the kind of, there are three types of craving that lead to suffering, which we'll talk about after we break for questions. Which you should do right now. <laughs> so we've got, as I said, we've got Four Noble Truths as a social convention, meant to be used as instruments leading to the reality of the end of suffering. There's an underlying duality here, the duality of the reality of suffering is the reality of no suffering. The truths are noble in the sense that they are true for everyone. They inform the noble search. They're preeminent. They're ennobling. Each carries a duty. And they are instrumental. They're meant to be used and then put aside. And so then in terms of the first noble truth, it is not that life is suffering on the earth. There is suffering. And suffering is the five clinging aggregates. If you have any questions about the aggregates or any questions about clinging, I'd be happy to answer them. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. Carefully. Well, I just experienced um, quite a period of intense terror. It's an unusual experience, but it went on and on. We were driving in England and the, the narrow roads going around corners and I was sure we were going to hit something. And it went on and on driving. I wasn't driving, I was navigating. And I was start I I felt the terror. I felt the terror. <laughs> I don't know. If that wasn't suffering, I don't know what, what well, that, that certainly was, yes. How can you not when you're in the middle of a terror situation not suffer? Okay, you can ask yourself, to, to what extent am I adding unnecessary suffering on top? How were you breathing at the time? I was, I, I was tight, and I was definitely aware that I was, I said to myself, this is terror. Mm -hmm. Speaking to your first point, that just recognizing the suffering isn't enough. Right. It's what's causing the suffering. Mm -hmm. And clinging to not wanting to get Scrunched. Scrunched. Okay. <laughs> okay. And you have to say, well, here we're in a situation where there's, by getting terrorized by the fact that I could be scrunched, does that help? Is that going to make sure that I'm not scrunched? The more I'm more afraid of it, does that guarantee that I'm not going to get scrunched? You realize, no, that's not going to help at all. And then you say, well, if I were scrunched, would I rather be scrunched while I'm breathing tight and tense, or rather should I be breathing in an open way? So relaxing the mind. So in case you know death does come, okay, I'll be I can go more peacefully. <laughs> there's a there's a point where you say, What what the hell? Maybe I will die. <laughs> and you find that terrorizing, then that terrifying, then you can say, Well, what would be the advantages of dying right now? You know, I wouldn't have to die in a hospital bed. <laughs> but you know, you want to say, okay, what am I clinging to? Can I let it go? And then, this, as I said, to what extent am I adding unnecessary suffering on top of this situation? And the fact that you're breathing in a very tight, tight, tight way, that's not helping anything at all. 
Just say, okay, I can't, I can't change the road, I can't change the fact that we're here, but I can change the way I'm breathing. I can change the way I'm talking to myself. you were to remember, I'm, we might die, we might die, we might die. That's also exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so think thoughts that are actually more helpful. And, and then this is one of the reasons why we teach the breath meditation where we do, okay. At the very least, I can breathe in a, in a relaxed way in this situation. And that will calm things down inside. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's what that's what Buddha talks about. You know, mindfulness of death. Is I could go at any time. Let me approach this next moment in a skillful way. Suffering, I, I remember a phrase, um, five aggregates subject to clinging. Is it that we cling to the five aggregates or that they do the clinging? We, we cling, we cling. We're subject to clinging. thing is that the Pali term is Upadana Kanda, clinging aggregate. Which can, which can be given that it's a compound in Pali. The relationship between the clinging and aggregate can be lots of different things. But here it's a case where clean, there's aggregates plus clinging. Or clinging to the five aggregates. We cling to the five aggregates. Or, let's put it this way, there is clinging. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get the we out of there as much as you can. <laughs> I wonder if you could speak to um, what a good litmus is. You know, as we're all personally working through the process of identifying how and what we're clinging to, um, where to give attention. There's, you know, lifetimes of aspects of this practice. You know, we could cultivate the arts our whole life. Um, maybe I'm stuck in a different place. Where in my practice, like, um, maybe to put it in the context of study the you know, how and when do I focus on death and decay or feelings mm -hmm. so that I'm considering, I'm really like working to the potential of where my edges in my practice mm -hmm. to better identify what is uh, most salient. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, you have to remember the purpose of mindfulness practice is to get the mind to calm down in this state of concentration. And you're going to look for, okay, what are the problems? What, what's getting in the way of my settling down? Is it, is it body issues? Is it feeling issues? Is it issues in the mind? And try to, try to identify which of those is getting in the way. And then focus your attention on that. And then use the areas where you can, say, sit by those things, suggesting just now, okay, the mind is racing, but you can work with your breath to calm it down. Okay, we're use that as a foundation for then looking into the mind. But remember, the purpose of the mindfulness is not just to be mindful, it's to get mind into concentration. So wherever, wherever it's not doing that, you have to ask yourself, okay, what's the obstacle right now? You need to focus on the obstacle. Question, Jeff, respectfully, will you please speak on the transition from second genre to third genre? Second to third. Okay. <laughs> For those of you who weren't here last night, we went for the first to second. Um, <laughs> second John and third. There comes a point where the sense of rapture becomes unpleasant. This, this is kind of this upwelling energy in the body and it becomes a little bit too much after a while. And you tell yourself, okay, is there, is, is there a more subtle energy in my body? This is when you, think you can you realize that there are, it's kind of like there are levels of energy that you can tune into. And by, by holding on to that sense of the intense energy that's really refreshing up to a point, but it's not refreshing anymore. Okay, I, the fact that I'm tuning into that level of energy means that I'm, I'm actually feeding it. Let me tune into a level of energy that's there, but I'm, that's more subtle. The analogy that kind of comes to my mind is it's like, you've been listening to hard rock. <laughs> and after a while, it's like, ah, this is just too much. I need something more calming. <laughs> And there's another radio station where, which on a different frequency that has the, has the more calming music. So you kind of tune into that. And for a while it seemed like oh, the, the, the other energy is still, is still going, but you're tuned into something more subtle. But the fact that you're not feeding this means that eventually it dissipates. And this afternoon we'll do third to fourth. Yes. We have a number of questions online, but here's one. Um, you were talking about various definitions of suffering. Does the Buddha define happiness? I rarely experience happiness, joy, or delight as Western culture defines them. The closest I get is tranquility, stillness, or contentedness. Okay, that, it, what's interesting, the Buddha talks about training the mind to overcome suffering and to find true happiness. He doesn't define suffering. He doesn't define happiness. He doesn't define um mind. <laughs> he talks about the training. So happiness, sukha would be anything from contentment, ease, well-being to strong states of bliss. That, that just, just as dukkha covers a big range, sukha also covers a lot, large range as well. Thank you. At the beginning, I, and I can't recall if it was actually the talk or just the intro, you spoke a bit about, or asked about fixed views. Mm -hmm. And I'd be interested just in the elaboration you've had on that, because I love that in my own practice, that reminder to 
check in on what are my fixed views. So very interesting to think about fixing views, and I just would welcome any additional content. Okay, there are, I mean, there are right views and wrong views. And the Buddha basically says, you know, cultivate right views, recognize wrong views as wrong views, and then learn how to abandon them. So if you're fixed onto a wrong view, that's the one that you would have to pull away from. Is, I guess I have perhaps limited my sense of fixed view being something akin to just rigid view. Mm -hmm. um, so what I think I'm hearing saying is investigate further to see if it's something that might be identified more as under skillful, under the right, full skillful, path. unskillful. Okay. And, and there's some views like the Buddha teaches that are basically true across the board, and other views that are right for certain circumstances. And then and knowing, okay, this is right for that circumstance, but it's not right for another circumstance. John Amaro has that great story about you know, telling his mother that according to Buddhism that she's not really his mother. <laughs> <laughs> and she had the common sense to say, look, if anybody knows who's <laughs> <laughs> And as, as he said, he felt so embarrassed even recounting the incident. Because <laughs> I'm going to hold to that fixed <laughs> <laughs> But the point is, um, as I said earlier, you know, like those teachings on the three perceptions, instead of the three characteristics, there are three perceptions. Those are useful for some things and not for others. For example, when you're working on concentration and your concentration falls apart, and you say, well, I just learned an important lesson about inconstancy. Then you said, no, you've got to work on that. There are a couple of cases in the canon, one where um, this monk has been, a young monk has been asked by some people from another religion, you know, what does the Buddha teach about what the results of karma? And the monk says, oh, the result of karma is dukkha. And the other, the other person said, well, I've never heard that from any Buddhist monk. You better go back and check the Buddha on that one. And so it goes back, and he's a little bit afraid to approach the Buddha directly, so it goes to Ananda. That's, you see this many times in the canon. People are afraid to approach the Buddha, so they go to Ananda first. Then Ananda takes the issue in. And the Buddha says, you know, that was, that was a foolish way of answering that question. And then Udayan happens to be listening and says, well, wait a minute, when you're thinking about the fact that you know, all, all actions lead to feelings and all feelings are stressful. And what he says, another foolish way. Because he points out when you're asked about action, you talk about the three kinds of feeling. There are, there are feelings of ease, feelings of, feelings of sukha, dukkha, and neither. And if you just say that all, all actions lead to stress or suffering, there's no, there's no um, motivation to try to be skillful. So that's a wrong time to be thinking about the three characteristics. Another question from online about <clears throat> comprehending suffering. What about someone living with war or an extreme situation like the Holocaust? Isn't it clear what's causing the suffering? Okay, what's clearly causing suffering is the fact that Okay, we we're talking about mental suffering as opposed to physical suffering. And okay, they're made the, the you know the, the the bad guys in the war, the bad guys in the Holocaust. Okay, they're causing you physical suffering. They don't have to be causing you mental suffering. That's what the Buddha is pointing to. As long as you are holding on to certain views about them and certain views about yourself that make you suffer, as long as you cling in that way, you're going to be suffering. 
And if you don't cling in that way, then they can do what they can to their body, your body, but they, you don't let them cause yourself. Because you're the one who's actually stabbing yourself. It's like that far side cartoon where this, they're down in hell, and there's this guy you know, pushing his wheelbarrow through the fires of hell, and he's whistling. <laughs> and one of the demons is off the other side. We're not getting through to that guy. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, they can be doing horrible things to you, but you know, there are people who've gotten through really bad torture, really bad situations, and they didn't suffer because they knew how to talk to themselves, they knew how to, what they were clinging to, and learn how to let go. But that's what that's what the word is pointing to. Can you speak more about the aggregate of perception on how to personalize it instead of like just seeing it's it, seeing it as a function, but just like how to personalize it that I am not my perception? Okay. Um, well, again, your way of labeling what's going on in the world is very, you know, very individual. It's your way, and you attend. Okay, I'm the kind of person who perceives this, or I'm the kind of person who perceives that, perceives that particular situation. Um, and that, that's how we identify ourselves. And, you know, you look on the World Socialist website, everything is the workers versus the capitalist class. You know? That's a way of perceiving all, all the issues. And they, they identify very strongly with that particular way. So is there no time that you you should identify? I mean, could you identify with yourself as a you know, peaceful person or well, you, as as a, as a meditator, you have to learn to identify yourself first as a meditator. What? As a meditator, say, okay, I'm a meditator. That's a useful perception. That's useful. Yeah. That's it. Well, there are lots of others. I mean, I'm, 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 okay. I'm, I'm a kind person. Why is it that I'm yelling at this other person for, you know, for cutting in front of me in, 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 in traffic? You know? That would be useful. That would be useful, too. It's, it's not that you start out the path by just dropping all perceptions. You're going to have to learn how to sort through your perceptions. It's the same with your, your sense of self. You've got a stable in there, okay? You have all different kinds of, all different kinds of selves. And before you totally let go of any sense of self, you first you've got to clean out the stables, sort through. Okay, which of the animals that I'm, I'm feeding in here really should not be fed, and which are, which are the ones I should encourage? Maybe there's some back in the back, and they're they're not getting properly fed, but they're really good. They need more nourishment. Because one of the points I'll be getting to later on is that those those four kinds of clinging, the Buddha has a has a rule for three of them on the path. He doesn't have a rule for sensuality. Fantasizing about your next pizza is not part of the path. But you have to adopt new views, adopt new habits and practices, 
and a new sense of self in order to in order to follow the path. That's this afternoon's message. <laughs> Question about um, an idea that I see in my own life causes a lot of suffering, and especially when things go really awry or something very very painful happens. This idea that I don't deserve this. And um, I'm, I'm just wondering if you could speak on that because sometimes I feel like you know there's a sort of there's a sort of healthy reaction where I'm trying to protect my boundaries in a sense. Mm -hmm. But I, like I said, I, I know that that idea causes a lot of suffering. Okay, well you do need your boundaries, or you don't go out and subject yourself to unnecessary mistreatment. But if you find that no matter how good a boundary I establish, it still comes through. That's when you tell yourself, I must have been a real character in a previous lifetime. <laughs> or this one. Or this one. <laughs> that makes it a lot easier to deal with. Good question about sensuality here and understanding the drawbacks and to understand the drawbacks of sensuality before it's too late like under example is understanding the drawback of hunger while you're still able to feed yourself you can say hunger is a, is sensuality it's it's, just, it's a feeling that your body is giving to you and it's how you interpret it how do i deal skillfully with my hunger find food in a way that's as, as harmless as possible It's when you start elaborating a little bit, you know, which kind of caviar would I like to have? Which kind of, you know, which, of course, here in Portland, you've got all these restaurants, you know, which of this many that, that really feeds the sensuality. And if the sensuality is not quite upon you yet, is right. there a way to sort of anticipate it? It's the anticipation that you know, the food carts down in this section of town are really, really good. Which ones am I going to go to during the lunch break? That's sensuality. So you're saying, the moment you anticipate it, it is it. It's, it's, it's the anticipation and the feeding off the anticipation. Um, you uh, uh, talked about four kinds of clinging, and uh, the, that was useful to how you went into them for me and then the clinging aggregates how do, how do those two relate to each other in the canon they they give a detailed analysis only in the case of your sense of self they take your sense of self and they say you can, you can identify with any of the aggregates at all in case of views that would be mainly um fabrications perceptions Habits and practices would have to do with, would involve your body in terms of how you act, but also in terms of your perceptions and fabrications. Sensuality, of course, is, you know, number one, feeling and perceptions and thought fabrications all at once. So the, the <clears throat> kinds of clinging are um, manifest through how you relate to the aggregates. Right, right. Mm -hmm. right. We don't have enough time to do all of the second open truth, but let's get started on it.
Okay, the second noble truth is not all desire. And it's not a general desire for things to be different from what they are. Sometimes you hear that. The Buddha lists three kinds in particular. There's crave, that's basically he says there's dangha, which is craving. And sometimes he would use the word chanda, which means desire. And you find you find them there's both passages in the canon that will talk about skillful forms of craving and skillful forms of desire, and then others that will talk about unskillful forms of craving and unskillful forms of desire. Sometimes you hear that chanda refers to potentially skillful desires, but dunha is always unskillful. It's not the case. There are, there's also a skillful dunha. The desire to be awakened is not a bad thing. So, but you've got three kinds of craving that are listed as the craving of the, of the cravings that cause suffering, i.e. the cravings that cause clinging. There's sensuality craving, there's becoming craving, and then there's craving for non-becoming. Sensuality, as, as I've already pointed out, is your fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures, planning for sensual pleasures, getting resolved. I would like to have this particular sensual pleasure. We focus on that activity actually more than we do the actual pleasures. We talked about the example of the pizza. In terms of becoming clinging, it's not just hoping for things to become a certain way, it's specifically hoping to take on a particular identity in a particular world of experience. And this can exist on the macro level, i.e. the room we're in right now is a world of experience that we are all sharing, and we all have our identities within this particular room. But there also, as you go through the day and you start imagining specific things that you would like to do, specific things you would like to have, specific things you would like to see come about, and that becomes a little world in your mind, and then you sort of go into that world. That's also becoming. And that's the process that fuels the larger becomings. Now, for instance, we talked about the, the, three, the three roles that yourself will play. This is where you see this in becoming. Say, okay, try the pizza, ice cream. Even, even in the cold of winter, you might want some ice cream. Okay, there's the you who knows how to make the ice cream or who has the wherewithal to buy it. There's the world in which the ice cream exists. And the parts of the world that are relevant are the ones that either help you get the ice cream or actually get in the way. Which says a lot of things in the world and a lot of things in your personal identity right now that are totally irrelevant to your desire for ice cream, they will not exist in that particular becoming. Now, the fact that you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Socialist or a Libertarian, at that moment that doesn't, that doesn't, that plays no role. It's the things that are relevant to the ice cream in your relationship to the ice cream. That's the world in which you exist, in that, in that mental world. And then, as I said, there's the you of the, as the observer saying, okay, is this a good world to go into? Is this not a good world to go into? Um, or once I'm in that world, how do I best negotiate it? Okay, basically giving orders to the other two selves. Okay, that's, that's a becoming in your mind. We go through many of these becomings in the course of the day. And then finally, there's the craving for a non-becoming, in which you found yourself in a particular state of becoming, and you don't like it, and you want to see it obliterated. 
Like you go down, you, you weigh yourself on, on the scales. It's way too much ice cream. <laughs> you just gotta stop this ice cream world. <laughs> so those are basically three three kinds of craving that lead to suffering. Now, as you can imagine, when you're well, the Buddha talks about how when when you die and are reborn, it's through craving that you are reborn. You cling to a particular craving, and that will take you to a new becoming. The image he gives is of a house that's on fire, and then the fire goes from that house to another house, and it's sustained by the wind. Back in those days, they felt that fire, in order to burn, needed something to cling to as it as it was going along. In this case, it clings to the wind, and the wind takes it to another house. Now you might think, well, hey, if I'm going to go in line with my cravings, that's pretty good. I get to go where I want to go. But then you actually there are some cravings that are really blind and really stupid, and you might latch onto them. And sometimes they run into an obstacle and they veer off in another direction. So you know, it's like it's like depending on the wind, where you're going to go. And you think about right while you're dying, these three kinds of craving are going to be the ones that come up foremost. It's not just craving for things to be different from what they are. That's much too general a definition. It's craving for sensuality. You're you're in pain, and for most people, the only escape they can think of for from from pain is to start thinking about sensual pleasures. And so here you are in the hospital bed and you're suffering from pain. You think, but wouldn't it be really great if I could be in a nice place where there's, you know, with good food, good, you know, whatever. And your mind tends to go there. And if you think about good food, well, sometimes you start thinking about human food, but all the blo- all the doors to the human realm are blocked. And so oh, there, there's a dog world. Well, they get to feed too. And there you go. So you got to watch out. So that's craving for sensuality. Craving for becoming is a feeling, okay, I am going to be annihilated unless I can find a new identity. I'm, I'm leaving this world. What kind of world is still available to me? And something opens up, you go for it. That's how craving for becoming could lead you on to another lifetime. And again, if you're really desperate, you'll, you'll just go for any... I don't want to be annihilated. I'll take whatever identity I can get. Well, sometimes you get some pretty bad ones. And then the last one, craving for non-becoming, is basically you're in pain, you're, or there's been some emotional problems in this particular lifetime. You, you'd rather just be obliterated. He said, I, I, I would prefer nothingness to this. And the Buddha found that, okay, going for nothingness like that, to destroy a particular becoming, you're actually creating the conditions for more becoming. Because you're still thinking in terms of me and the world I'm in. I want that to be obliterated. The me then latches onto that desire, and then, then that becomes a, the food for more craving, and then more clinging. So those are the three kinds of clinging that the Buddha identifies as the cause of suffering, which function both during this lifetime, as you go from day to day to day, craving this, craving that, craving this, craving that, and then when the time comes, you have to leave this lifetime, okay, then the cravings will really take over unless you have trained the mind. Then we have a strategic problem here, and the Buddha says, okay, the desire for becoming is going to lead to more becoming, and the desire for no becoming is going to lead to, the obliteration of becoming is going to lead to more becoming. How do you get out of this? And his, the way he recommends is that you instead of trying to obliterate the becoming you already have, 
because they go back and look at the process by which the mind creates its becomings. This is why there's so many lists in Buddhism, and so dependent core rising has all those different steps. You start looking at, okay, well, exactly how do I create this sense of who I am? How do I create this sense of a world? So we start with craving. What, what, what's the precondition for craving? It's feeling. What's the precondition for feeling? Contact. What's the precondition for contact? The sense of six senses. And it keeps and chases them down. And even prior to sensory contact, there's the, the mental activity that goes into preparing the mind to receive a particular contact, which is where the real meat of dependent co-arising is. But in those cases, instead of looking at me in a particular world, just simply looking at these are events that are happening through a causal chain. And there's a choice to latch onto one of them, and then through that choice there comes a sense of who you are in a particular world. You want to catch that before that becoming forms. And as you look through the various stages that go into it, you begin to see well, there's really nothing much there. And here I am creating my sense of who I am and the world I want to live in out of things that are pretty ephemeral and unreliable. So you want to see these things in impersonal terms and see them as not worthy of desire. And that's how you avoid new becomings. The old becomings then, then just run themselves out. And you're not creating any new becomings. And that's the strategic way through this particular problem that the Buddha identified. Let me see if I can give you an example. Well, it's kind of like wanting to build a house. And you look at the raw materials that they've, they've assembled for you to build a house, or that you've been assembling to build this next house, and you realize, I have a lot of frozen meat here, <laughs> which looks like it'd make good bricks for the time being. <laughs> but then you examine it, what happens to these bricks after a while? Well, they, they, they melt. It's like a student of mine who works up in Saskatchewan. His department chair, not only is the department of the computer science department, but he also has his own ranch. And once a year, he'll take a steer down to the local, local what do you, what is it, what do you call the animal place where they kill animals? <coughs> slaughterhouse, slaughterhouse, yeah. And takes him down to the slaughterhouse and gets his meat for the winter. And so the last winter, he took it down, got all the beef, brought it back, and put the head of the cow into his this little container like they have in the back of pickup trucks, where you can stash stuff and lock it up. We put the cow, cow's head in there, forgot about it, throughout the winter. The following spring, they had a new candidate come in to... <laughs> you can see where this is going. <laughs> they had a new candidate come in, and he picked her up at the airport. And as he opened up this thing to put her luggage in there, there was, there was and it, it did not impress her. <laughs> That's what happens to frozen frozen meat. So you've got this house that you realize you're building it out of frozen meat. And you say, I don't think I want to build this house anymore. This is not worth building houses out of. And this is why the Buddha analyzes these things in these impersonal in these impersonal events. Okay, this is something that's happening, and it's not it's not events in the abstract. You can actually see the events happening in the mind. You say, Look, I'm creating my sense of who I am out of this stuff. I'm creating my sense of the world out of this stuff. It's not worth the effort. And that's how you abandon the craving. Not by saying, I want to obliterate myself, I want to go into, I want to annihilate things, but simply, well, how does this process of becoming occur? And at what point does the craving come in? And can I, can I look at this, these items that, I'm, that I've been craving and realize that it's not worth it? 
And we'll, this afternoon we'll get into the, the stages by which the Buddha recommends that you do that. But that's, that, that is a strategic problem, and this is the Buddhist solution to that strategic problem. Rather than trying to obliterate becoming, just look at, well, how do I do this? I'm doing this all the time, I might as well understand the process. And see, okay, what am I creating out of this? And, and given all the emotional investment that I put into my sense of who I am and the sense of the world in which I function, is it worth it? Just one last thing before I move on on this topic. Um, the fact that, you know, you're, as you're going through the day, you're creating a sense of becoming, certain things just l l are lost from that particular world in which you become, and you focus on particular things that are relevant. It's like that statement about the, you know, an alcoholic goes into a house and when pretty quickly knows where they keep the liquor. You know? They're very sensitive to that detail. A monk comes into your house, he knows where you keep the dark chocolate. You know? <laughs> there was a far side cartoon where World War III has started, there are nuclear bombs going off on the horizon, and there's this guy driving up to a traffic light, and there's a dog in the car, and there's a dog on the sidewalk outside, and the caption is, finally, finally Rex saw something that captured his interest, <laughs> as the dogs look at each other. <laughs> Okay, the duty with regard to craving is to abandon it. And abandoning doesn't mean simply allowing these things to go away on their own. When the Buddha talks about the cessation of craving, he's not saying, okay, well, just sit there and you will see that, yeah, eventually these cravings go away on their own. It doesn't work that way. There are two kinds of causes of suffering that the Buddha identified. There are those that will go away when you simply look at them. And those that require what the Buddha calls an exertion of a fabrication, in other words, you have to make an effort for them to go. And so there will be some cases where it actually does happen. You look at this particular craving and say, gee, this isn't worth it to begin with. There are others where you really have to work at it because you're very much attached. And given our timing, I'm going to go into the, how you do that after the meal. I want to know if you have any questions on what I've said so far about the causes of suffering. Yes? Um, regarding becoming, I feel like I have a general understanding of beneficial ways of becoming, but in my mind, it's easier to understand that when it's a solitary practice, such as meditation or mm -hmm. perception or something. Mm -hmm. But in daily lay life with parenting, beneficial careers, relationships, um, becoming becomes much more jumbled in my mind when it's uh, interactive. Yeah, well, we do have these interactive becomings where you have someone who's either you have a goal in common, if both of you are trying to work toward the goal. Or you have a goal in common, but a lot of other things not in common, and there's a lot of negotiating that has to go on. In this case, you have to look at yourself and say, okay, exactly what is my purpose in this in this particular particular role that I'm assuming here, and how many how many purposes do I have, and are, are those purposes working in in harmony, or are they actually my own purposes working across? 
cross directions. And then, of course, then there are the other people who are involved in that same becoming. What are their purposes? And to what extent are our purposes in harmony? And what extent are they, are they working across purposes? So the same questions you ask yourself in any situation. Right. This time you're factoring in the purposes of other people. Yeah. And you have to remember, okay, you've got five aggregates, they've got five aggregates. You have four ways of clinging, they have four ways of clinging. The math gets really complex. You know? <laughs> yes. Regarding becoming, at some point I will be dying mm -hmm. and transitioning. And from what I've learned from you, worlds will appear. Mm -hmm. What am I to do during that time? Am I just waiting? Staying calm. What if like, you appeared? I mean, what? When do I? Like, what do you do? Well, basically, you tell yourself, do I really want to go to any of these? Uh -huh. And if you're able to maintain your center at that point, say, I don't have to go there. Mm -hmm. I've got at least I've got my awareness right here. Mm -hmm. um, then none of these look particularly appealing, or I can see that there would be a drawback. There's try to stay centered as much as you can. So, when I interpret something as a place that is skillful to go, mm -hmm. I go. Yeah. I and go, I trust you, that. You'd say, I'd, I'd like to go to a place where I can practice. And there's no trickery happening up there. The thing, the thing is, the thing is, well, I'll give you an example. Suppose you were born in 19th century Thailand, or you were about to be reborn in 19th century Thailand. Um, certain possibilities might open up. One might be that you might be a member of the royal family. Another might be you would be born up in the, in, in the northeast to a poor peasant family. Ask yourself, which would give me the better opportunity to practice? Now, that particular one, peasant family, northeastern Thailand, that's the one to go for. What if I decide neither? I wait. If you wait, okay. Um, <laughs> now, this is the point where I, I'm not 100% sure. There may be times when we just feel irresistibly pulled. They say, but as long as I'm going someplace, I want to go someplace where I can practice. Yes. Another question from, uh, from online. Is clinging to life for the sake of continued practice in Dharma a skillful form of clinging or unskillful? And to what extent is it possible to turn it into a form of Heedlessness, or where does it become a hindrance? Okay, if you can maintain the precepts and still cling to life, I'd say hang on for the time being. Say, so as long as I've got the opportunity to, to, as a human being, I don't know where I'm going next time around, but I do have the opportunity as a human being right now, I better hang on and practice. Now you might find that, okay, if I let go of this certain attitudes I might have, I might just, I might just, just let go. I said, okay, well, let go. And maybe your mind is making a false dichotomy. Maybe you could let go and still survive. But it's the what's causing me suffering right now. That's the big issue. Yes. Speaking about transition. So when that happens, you're basically gets uh, attached with your body, with your senses, right? And how can you make any sort of decisions when you see something in the, in the different state. Isn't it happening more of on the kind of intuitive level and whatever you've been working on in terms of your mind state will help you 
That's what you're hoping. That's what you're hoping that you've developed good habits. Because it's not like you're going to the ship, to the store and you're selecting, hey, these are the worlds, which one I'm going to go to. Well, it, it depends. It, it, dep it depends on your karma. I mean, it, it's some, some some opportunities may open themselves up to you, and others would not, depending on your past karma. And then, given if you remind yourself, okay, I one of the reasons I'm practicing is so I can keep control of my mind now. And see see what opportunities come up. And then there's, there is part of your mind that's functioning that has nothing to do with the body. And as you're leaving the body, there's still there's still the function of craving and clinging can still happen. Question is, who cares that sort of consciousness that decides? The Buddha, the Buddha says, don't ask that question. Ask yourself, how, how do I make a skillful choice? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why the question of skillful versus unskillful choices. Is so basic as to what gets reborn. The Buddha never answers that question. He said, "This is how the process happens." I mean, the question of what gets reborn—that's something you have no control over, right? Yeah. But you do have control over the, the choices you're going to make. And this seems to be getting more focused on that issue, trying to make a skillful choice. I don't know if you, did you see the movie Ice Age Two. I was I was on a flight across the Pacific one time, and this kid sitting in front of me had the whole whole slew of Ice Age movies. Um, and I must I must said I, I preferred Ice Age One to all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> but number two had this really interesting passage where these animals are are drift in this fog bank, and all of a sudden these very attractive mermaids and mermen start appearing. And the different animals say, and but as you look more carefully at the mermaids and the mermaids say, wait a minute, they're static in those images. And you look at the static, and in, in the static there are these piranha fishes. Yeah, these what? Piranha. You know the ah, <laughs> fangs. And you realize, okay, something may look attractive, but watch out. That's what I was Yeah. So, but to see through that. So, is it better just to just wait? Just it's better stay, just to wait and stay, stay, just stay centered. Just yeah. keep coming, and eventually it will be clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, this sort of brings me back to what we were talking about yesterday: the preparations and what you brought up about heaven, and mm -hmm. which is something I I don't have the imagination about, mm -hmm. but. This, I think, can give me an idea of heaven is, or I, I don't even like that word, frankly, but is to, is to have an awakening in a life where I can practice. Just a really simple right. sentence like that. Wherever I, wherever I can practice the true Dharma. Make sure it's true. And the best way to ensure that is to keep practicing now. It kind of gives you a momentum. That story where the Brahma, somebody comes down. Mm -hmm. I was thinking these Brahmas are so, their minds are so powerful, they are so smart. I'm thinking, why, why didn't he decide to practice right there and get liberated? I don't know. <laughs> There's some who have the karma, they have to stay
Some of the Ajahns in Thailand are reputed to be have, have been non-returners. The reason they didn't make it to Arahans is they still have work they have to do. That's a possibility. Yes. Another question from online. Last night you talked about imagining what generosity, virtue, heaven are like. And then there were two other factors. One was renunciation and the other which I don't remember. The drawbacks of sensuality. I'm wondering if you could touch on how you imagine renunciation. Okay, the, the important thing is that you, as the Buddha said, that you see renunciation as rest and as peace rather than as deprivation. And there are stories in the canon, lots of stories in the canon. One is um, the story of um, Badia, I've forgotten his last name. He had been a king before he was a monk. And he sit, goes and sits under a tree, he says, ah, what bliss, what bliss. And the other monks hear this and they say, gee, he must be thinking about his time as a king. He's missing all the bliss that he had as a king. So they're concerned. So they go tell the Buddha. And the Buddha has a monk come see body and come to see the Buddha. To ask him, okay, when you're sitting under the tree saying, what bliss, what bliss, what are you talking about? And I think the Buddha really knows what's going on. He wants to give body a chance to say this in public, which is, he says, oh, I think about, but when I was a king, enjoying the, enjoying sovereignty, I had to have guards posted inside the palace, outside the palace, inside the city, outside the city, inside the countryside, outside the countryside. And even then I could hardly sleep for fear. Now I sit under a tree, my needs are, are not, my needs are met by people's generosity. And I, my mind is like a wild deer, I'm free to go anywhere I want to. See, that's the bliss I'm talking about. So in order to see it, see it not as a deprivation that you're sitting under a tree rather than sitting on a throne, but realize, okay, I'm free of a lot of those things. So use your imagination in that way. There's another passage where the Buddhist is sleeping out in the, in the middle of the winter on the ground, and this young man comes out the next morning and says, did you have a good night? And the Buddha says, yes, I slept very well. He says, how do you sleep very well? It was, the wind is cold, the ground is hard. Um, and the Buddha said, well, think about this. There's a young man who has all the pleasures that you can imagine. And he goes into what they would imagine as the ideal situation. It's a, a bed with a red coverlet. I don't know why red. Um, and has four wives on each corner. <laughs> um, but could, could you imagine that he might have trouble sleeping? He says, yes, I can imagine he would have trouble sleeping. He's overcome with passion, aversion, or delusion. In the case of the Buddha, OK, that passion, aversion, and delusion is gone in me. That's why I sleep well. So learn how to imagination renunciation as imagine renunciation as restful. As for the drawbacks of sensuality, really think about okay, if I my happiness depended on certain sensual pleasures, how reliable would that be? And what would be the problems that would come along with those sensual pleasures, like the problems of being a king? In the Polycanon, they love talking about the problems of being a king. There's a great passage where the king king Basenity comes to see the Buddha. And before he leaves the palace, his sisters say, oh, by the way, take our, take our, our, give our regards to the Buddha. And so the king comes, gives, and says, oh, by the way, my sisters ask me to give their regards. And the Buddha says, couldn't they have found a better servant to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and then Basanity reports that he heard something about what the Buddha said, and it turns out it's false. So he tries to find out who in the palace got this false information in the palace. 
And by the end of the sutta, nobody will admit to having given the false information. So here he is king, and he's subject to false information, but he can't track things down. So use your imagination in that way. Any last question before 11? That's your question again. Okay. okay. But again, you're you're trying to cultivate skillful thoughts to counteract the thoughts that would lead you to do something unskillful. So you're not just. Well, it's um, trying to, it's a matter of learning how to use your power in this way that's totally harmless. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. 